You're going to build a car to beat Ferrari with a Ford. Correct. And how long did you tell them that you needed? Two, three hundred years? 90 days. <laughs> This isn't the first time Ford Motors has gone to war. We know how to do more than push paper. Go ahead, Carol. Go to war. The film may be called Ford versus Ferrari, but that's a little bit of a misdirection because it's less about those famous brands and more about two men, car designer Carol Shelby and driver Ken Miles, who designed and raced the Ford that would challenge Ferrari at the 1966 Le Mans in France. Welcome to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Today, we're going to hit the track at Le Mans to find out what it takes to push a car and a driver to the limit during that celebrated 24-hour race as director James Mangold talks about his new film, Ford vs. Ferrari. Then I discuss the recent LA Times list of the 20 best Asian-American films of the past 20 years with San Diego Asian Film Festival artistic director Brian Hu. He initiated the list with film critic Justin Chang as the festival prepared to celebrate two decades of showcasing Asian and Asian-American films. But before we wave the green flag to set this podcast in motion, we need to take the first of two short breaks. So hold tight and keep that engine running, and I'll be right back to speak with James Mangold, director of Logan, Walk the Line, and now Ford versus Ferrari. Donations come in many forms, a sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. First of all, this is an amazing story. So I was wondering when you first became aware of this Ford Ferrari competition. Well, I was aware of Carol Shelby and the, the, the universe of, of Shelby American for the last 20 years. But I first read a script based on this, this singular adventure in about, I think, 2010, 2011. And I made my best effort to try and get myself attached to it. But unfortunately, it was already set up with another director and actors and uh, production team. And then after Logan, I kept asking Fox about this project, and it was suddenly free and jumped on. And what is it about this story that appealed to you most? It's a good question. I mean, I think that the, for me, the, it's always first with character. I love these characters, and I love a story that somehow surprises me. I think for many people in your audience, they're probably going to have assumptions about what exactly this movie is from the marketing campaign, and it's got a, it's a sports movie. And I think the story has so many wrinkles and turns and also so many surprises in the sense that, you know, in many ways, it's not really the story of Ford versus Ferrari. It's the story of Ford versus Ford in the sense that can can they even get their act together? Uh, it's kind of an art versus commerce story, which is something I really responded to of can can this crazy dysfunctional band of hot rodders, designers, executives, beatniks, war veterans, uh, kind of mavericks, kind of all get along enough 
and marketing executives all get along enough to kind of put a car on the road that has a chance against somebody, the perfectionistic brilliance of Enzo Ferrari. Well, yeah, I was going to say the title Ford versus Ferrari almost feels like a misdirection, but those are the probably more recognizable names in the story. Yeah, and sometimes titles misdirecting is a good thing. I mean, I think that the I, I kind of hate nothing more than a movie that tells you exactly what it is in its title. I feel like why go? But the reality is, I, I think you're you're right that 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 it is very much. Uh, I mean, it, it is for me a story about many more things besides just um, these two car titans taking each other on. And in terms of the racing and the driving, what was the most important thing that you wanted to convey about that aspect of their world? Well, I don't even think of it as separate. I mean, the interesting thing is I I think, you know, this is, I've made a good number of kind of muscular action-oriented movies now. And the one thing that always guides me, and as I've done it more and more, uh, it becomes a kind of North Star for me, is the idea that you don't think of the action scenes as any different than a dramatic scene. They, that obviously it's different in process. There's a hundred pieces. There's stunts. There's rigs. There's all this gear involved in order to tell the story and and show it at 200 miles an hour on a track. But that the first thing as a director I have to do is answer some essential questions about what is the scene about, what's changing for the characters in this scene. You know, there's an old adage about directing musicals and writing musicals that you want your characters to change during the songs, meaning you don't want the best musicals have character developments and plot developments inside the music. That it isn't that the story and the acting and the character work stops and then people just dance about for five minutes and then the story starts again. Similarly, in my own opinion, in action movies, We've gotten to a place now where there's like two minutes of character stuff and then 12 minutes of super expensive CG explosions and city destroying and leaping and jumping and screaming. And then that stops again and two minutes of character stuff. That's I don't want to make movies like that. And so when you ask me what my goal was, it was to solve several problems at once. One was how do I allow the characters to be changing, understand them, be connected to them, in the midst of all this action. And the other part was a kind of mystery I was asking myself, which is while I found the gear and the world of cars fascinating, I have been singularly bored whenever I try to watch uh, motorsports on television. And that kind of gave me a clue, you know, about how not to shoot it. When you're in these kind of panning or aerial shots, watching these little red and green and blue and yellow specks travel around a loop, One's going ahead, one's falling behind, one's overtaking another now. We don't know why. It just seems like we could just as well be watching a kind of uh, a greased pig competition, that I don't understand what's going on that's driving why one car is taking over another or not. So my goal became, how do I get into the car, on the track, in the pit, in a way that obviously uh, a live television sporting event would never have this kind of access. And how do I help the audience understand why I'm braking lightly right now, why I'm downshifting, why I'm not pushing the car to the limit right now, why I'm overheating, are are my tires holding in this rain, can I overtake this guy? Um, The questions and the tactics and the emotional life of the characters while confronting them becomes 
my absolute priority in how to block and solve and render the action. And how was it to actually, like, get that camera inside the car with them and and to make the viewer feel kind of like they were really a part of that? It's a challenge, but, but several things have happened in the last 20 years that make it more possible. One is... One is um, just the technology of the cameras themselves, mm-hmm. that we can now put cameras, um, uh, you either miniature or full-size, almost anywhere. But, but also that the, the rigging uh, have gotten incredible. I mean, there's things, there's devices that have been around for a while now, uh, one called the Russian Arm, which is essentially a kind of modified Mercedes. Usually it's a Mercedes minivan with a crane arm on it that can go over 100 miles an hour, with a with a uh, kind of motion dampened um, c- uh, c- controlled head, um, geared head on it that allows you to s- to follow these cars, um, sweep over them, peer inside them, um, inches from them as they're going at high speed as well. Um, that is just stuff that you couldn't do ten or fifteen years ago. We also built many different GT40s. We had a GT40 that was essentially kind of like you took a car and sawed it in half at the at the equator. So you had the front half that was intact where, where uh, Christian or Matt would be sitting, but behind it you had kind of more of a, it was like a, a pickup truck. We had a flatbed area where the camera crew could kind of live and poke into this half a half a car, which still had enough power and engine power to drive. So we would be hurling it through space, but the crew would be able to exist in this kind of uh, special buck, half half car, if you will. And how difficult was it to recreate Le Mans and and, and how much, like, what was the, the, the trade-off between having real footage and then adding and enhancing with visual effects? Well, we wanted for this movie to ground it as much as we could in reality. And so the cars themselves and the track, the asphalt itself, and even the main grandstand at Le Mans, we built. But um, what we also did is, you know, Le Mans doesn't exist in the form it did in 1960s anymore. So there was really no way to, um, to shoot there. We did shoot in the village of Le Mans, where, where the race takes place for the scenes where Christian and, um, and Matt are arriving and preparing. But the but the the actual track is actually a kind of cinematic, almost a kind of um, uh, a cinematic experiment, like in the days of the invention of cinema in Russia, where you're kind of there's about six different locations which are all being combined. One on the west coast, the rest on the east coast, being combined to form one loop around the track. So every time you see the cars go around the track, they're passing the main grandstand and pit area, which was shot in Aquadulce, California, and then traveling by a series of landmarks because the Le Mans racetrack is very famous for the Dunlop Bridge and the S's and the Mulsanne Strait and the White House Corner, etc. Each of them has a very specific and historical look. There, the, uh, the degree of the turn, the vegetation around the turn, the architecture around the turn. Um, these are all country roads in France. So we scouted in Georgia for, for these locations, none of which were close by any other. So 
when you see, if this, I'm sorry if this is long, but when you see a single lap and you're seeing three cars in a certain configuration traveling past the grandstand, the next cut is them going under the Dunlop Bridge, which is 4,000 miles away from the grandstand. And the next cut is them rounding the S's, which is a whole other location in Georgia, two hours away from the Dunlop Bridge. The Mulsanne is three hours from the last thing. And each one of those was a different several days of production, shooting all the sequences in rain, in dry weather, whether in noon light, in dawn light, of the cars in different configurations for the race, so that when this whole thing is stitched together, you have the complete feeling of a unified loop, an eight and a half mile hour, eight and a half mile loop of track that feels um, like it's all in the same place. And did you involve any of the family members or any of the people who were even peripheral to the story in like your research or in putting this together? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, the screenwriters got a chance to meet with Carol Shelby before he passed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Charlie Agapu, who's who's played by Jack McMullen in the movie as a very young Scotsman who is a part of the pit crew, is a Bentley dealer in Beverly Hills right now um, in his 60s, I believe. And he was, of course, very young then. And he was with us all the time. Peter Miles, who was played by Noah Jupe in the movie Ken Miles' Son, is uh, also a Southern California resident still and um, helped Christian enormously and all of us um, with some expertise on what happened. Obviously, these races and the facts around them and the development of the GT40, um, there's a tremendous amount of research material, um, photographic footage of all kinds, interview materials. Uh, Ken Miles did many radio interviews, and um, so did, obviously, the the volume material on Carol Shelby is enormous. So we did a lot. And little details like Carol stealing the stopwatches or dropping a bolt on the <laughs> uh, near the pit crew for Ferrari were these things that had been researched out, or how did you find about those kind of things? Yeah, well, they were things that these they didn't may not have all occurred on that specific mm-hmm. race, but they were things they did. Um, that that one of the things that both Carol reminisced to the screenwriters about, but also all our other drivers. By the way, we also had the sons of many of the real drivers um, uh, driving on our uh, driving stunts and playing in some cases their own their own fathers in the movie. All to a man, all these racers talked about how the pit culture during races is one where everyone's playing head games with each other all the time trying to convince the other pits that their car is breaking down, trying to undermine their confidence, screw them up um, in any way possible. It's a, I mean, what else are you going to do with 24 hours, literally six feet from your competition, except try and figure out how to freak them out? And talk a little bit about uh, Matt Damon and Christian Bale playing these roles. What did you see in them that made them right for these parts? Well, I mean, you're talking about two of the <laughs> best actors alive, in my opinion. Um, so seeing them is pretty easy. And I've known both of them forever. I mean, in Matt's case, I've known him since the middle 90s. And in Christian's case, almost as long. And we made a movie together in, in 310 to Yuma with Russell Crowe a while ago. And and actually have developed a couple other things together over the years and been friends. And so Ken Miles um, seemed like a home run to me for Christian because... Because in so many ways, Christian is Ken Miles and has huge parts of this character in his DNA. He is British. He is a kind of a working class fella at heart. He loves 
um, to race motorcycles, did for many years. He loves his family, has a really close-knit family. He's a private man, is not particularly into the politics of Hollywood or anywhere else. Um, likes to focus in his on his work. He loves his work. is a perfectionist at his work. Is also profoundly playful, even goofy sometimes in 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 his work. And has at the same time a kind of natural volatility or combustibility when you're watching him, which it seemed like Ken was viewed as someone who was both playful and kind of dangerous at the same time. All of that made him perfect. He kind of just pushed the car hard the whole way, right? That's right. You have to be kind to the car. You feel the poor thing groaning underneath you. If you're going to push a piece of machinery to the limit and expect it to hold together, you have to have some sense of where that limit is. Look out there. Out there is the perfect lap. No mistakes. Every gear change, every corner, perfect. You see it. I think so. Most people can't. Most people don't even know it's out there, but it is. It's there. And Matt, I've known for a long time, is kind of a manager, is kind of always, is, as much as he's an actor, I mean, he could easily be a director. He's certainly a very successful producer at this point, but he's managing different personalities, um, his family, his life. He's, he's, a, he's, he's thinking very broadly about all that stuff, and I could see in him. Also, I knew I loved what he did in the Coen Brothers movie a few years back in True Grit and felt like he could really capture that kind of... Um, the salesman and the manager and the operator that was Carol Shelby. And one last question. I just wonder if you have any favorite car movies that you grew up with or that you're particularly fond of. Well, you know, the one I like most, um, I, th- there's the obvious ones that are most spectacular, um, Le Mans and, and Grand Prix, uh, the ones that come to mind first for me. Um, but Bonnie Bedelia, Heart Like a Wheel, mm-hmm. um, a John Kaplan movie from, I believe, the late 70s or the early 80s, is a great movie. And closer to what I was after, which is the sense that, you know, as I said, I'm not a big motorsports guy. So, And what I am into, what really gets me high making a movie, is intimacy, dramatic intimacy, breakthroughs with the actors, unique characters. And one, one of the things I loved about that movie um, is that it's it's as much as it's about racing, it's about the struggles of life, adult life, real life. You know, it's why I think our movie appeals to people who don't give a damn about racing at all. Um, that the the car and racing itself becomes a kind of metaphor for so many people about uh, kind of all the compromises you have to make in life when you're trying to accomplish something, and and the personal side of these characters' lives would certainly play as big a role as the races themselves. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a pleasure. That was James Mangold, director of Ford versus Ferrari, that opens next week. I need to take a second and final break, and then I'll be right back to discuss and debate the 20 best Asian-American films of the last 20 years with San Diego Asian Film Festival artistic director Brian Hu. 
in the wake of the surprise box office success of Crazy Rich Asians, and on the eve of the festival's Big 2-0 birthday, Brian Hu helped curate the list for the LA Times. So cool your engines, and then prepare to explore this new canon of Asian-American films. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Gift Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. Brian, you are the artistic director of the San Diego Asian Film Festival. It is celebrating its 20th year this year. You've been there almost half that time. So what kind of changes have you seen or how have you seen the festival grow in that time? Well, it's amazing. When I first arrived in 2011, we were showing films on 35 millimeter prints. I was lugging these 50 pound boxes for every single film. Now we get films on flash drives. So I was thinking about this year, like we really are the history of film of the last 20 years, thinking about the material of film. Like we've shown 35 millimeter, we've shown films on tape, on disc. Now we get films on hard drives, we're showing films on virtual reality. And, and that's been part of the fun um, and challenge because it means we have to constantly adapt, but it also shows sort of uh, the sense of anything is possible. Like film is trying to figure itself out and Asian-American filmmakers are trying to figure out where they fit within that um, shift in the cinematic landscape. And then we as a film festival are also trying to figure out what can, how, how best to serve our audience now. So, Brian, in addition to the San Diego Asian Film Festival celebrating its 20th anniversary, you were also involved in creating a list of 20 best Asian-American films from the past 20 years, working with Justin Chang at the L.A. Times. How did this project come about? Well, I so when we were thinking about what to do for our 20th anniversary, the last thing I wanted to do was just play our greatest hits. Uh, I feel like that would have been too easy. But there, I think there's something to be said about bringing back films from the past because these films have been forgotten, um, unfortunately. Many of them have been forgotten. But I also wanted to make sure this is a national project, that this isn't just for our audiences in San Diego. I mean, that we, we believe in our audiences in San Diego. We want to, we want to um, support them. But this is a... a, a, a conversation that should be happening nationally, um, especially because we were seeing last year when Crazy Rich Asians came out. Um, nationally, there's this whole conversation about this is the first Asian-American film in 20 years or 25 years to be the, from Hollywood to be in theaters. And I'm like, you're talking about this like that's a huge deal. And it is, I guess. But I, I, didn't, I didn't really care. I mean, I like Crazy Rich Asians, fine. But um, to me, the if it, if it failed, it didn't matter that much to me because I can fall on um, the fact that we have had so many Asian American films in those 25 years. So why, why are people not talking about those movies as if they never existed or as if we can't get the same kind of pleasures from those films? And then I realized this is a, this is a problem of memory. And part of it is Asian American cinema, Asian American communities have always not, have, have never really loved this concept of the canon. 
The whole idea of Asian American cinema is we hate canons. <laughs> we hate that Hollywood canon. We hate the mainstream canon. That's why we make our own films. But I have always been of the, maybe because I'm just the cinephile, I love film critics and like I love making lists. <laughs> um, that Making lists is a critical intervention. Um, it's our way of saying, well, this is an alternative canon. I didn't want it just to be my canon or Pack Arts' canon because I realized that there's people all over the country who like Asian American films for different reasons and all that is legitimate. And, and everyone has had um, very different exposures to Asian American cinema and that's legitimate as well. And I wanted to make sure that film critics were involved um, because they're ones who have professionally had to be critical. There's so much of Asian American cinema that's just, I mean, to put it bluntly, like patting each other on the back from having com- completed your films. And I've always, through the San Diego Asian Film Festival, um, been against that. Like we, We're happy to, to, to deny a film if we don't think it's good enough, even if it's playing every other Asian American film festival. Um, and so I wanted film critics involved. I wanted other curators to kind of like secretly say the films that they've, they've liked the most of these last 20 years because they watch everything. I know this because I am one. <laughs> um, they're the ones who really can have the, the widest view of what the scene is like, even more than film critics. Cause critics only see what gets right. that comes out. I intentionally did not want to pull filmmakers. Um, filmmakers are too close. And we did have one filmmaker on there, Valerie So, but that's because she's also a critic and and scholar. And so I feel like by focusing on critics and curators, we're going to get a very interesting selection. And it was fascinating to get, I had a running spreadsheet going um, and just seeing like how, like who is coming out on top. And so I pitched this idea to the LA Times. Um, At first, really, I just wanted to tell Justin, who's uh, a a friend, um, that I I wanted to do this and that I wanted him to be a part of it. And he said, you know what? The LA Times should be, should be doing something like this. The LA Times doesn't usually do top 20 lists. Um, but he understood the historical importance of a moment like this and a project like this. So really props to Justin for making a case and, in, and to the editors at the LA Times for, for doing this. And it went viral in its own way. It was controversial. And... I'm glad because it got conversations going about who is not involved, or who who is not included on this mm-hmm. list, and the more the important question to me is why weren't they included? What does that mean about our institutions and the way we remember films? And I, I'm very proud of the final product, and I hope it inspires other lists. The canons are only as good as the canons that they kind of other, other alternative canons that they inspire. So before we talk about some of the films that made this list, uh, break down what the criteria was. What films could be included or not included? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because a lot of the people I pulled came back to me and said, well, what about this? Why didn't this count? Uh, I specifically wanted films directed by Asian Americans about Asian Americans. Throughout the years, we've had so many great films, like incredible films directed by Asian Americans that are not about Asian American subjects. For instance, Chloe Zhao's films like um, The Writer. We have this rare chance now to be as specific as possible, um, to say, well, what about the stories we tell about ourselves? So that was a criteria. I focused it on the United States as opposed to including sort of the transnational work, like work in Canada or work by Asian Americans that are set in other countries or are set or primarily set in other countries or about other countries. And so we were able to really tackle the question at hand, like what are the best films by and about us? And... 
Talk a little bit about the top ones. I was really happy to see Justin Lin's Better Luck Tomorrow because to me this was one of those films that marked that, I think, turning point in Asian-American films where it doesn't have to be just positive role models. It doesn't have to be just about looking very closely at Asian-American identity in a kind of conventional sort of way. So this was topping the list. Yeah. Were you happy about that? It was what I expected. And it was on almost every person's list somewhere, well, whether number one or number 20. Um, yeah, it's, it is, it's great because I remember when the film came out, people weren't sure what to do with it. They weren't sure if this is okay. Mm-hmm. A film, so for, for audiences who don't know, if Better Luck Tomorrow is about a bunch of bad Asian-American high schoolers who cheat and who ultimately committed a murder. Do this by tomorrow, you get a 50. What? We don't have to play by the rules. We can make our own. It's easy money. It'll be fun. We were putting the laws of supply and demand into practice. And then it snowballed. You think you can break in? There's going to be a lot of money involved. Our straight A's were our alibis. As long as our grades were there, we were trusted. You think you can get away with anything, don't you? Yeah, if you're clever enough. making so much money, we couldn't spend it fast enough. What do you think he is, some Chinese movie stuff? Hi, I am Chow Yun-Fat. <laughs> Rumors about us came and went fast and furious. So how does it feel to be famous? Better than sex. The more notorious we became, the more invitations we got. We didn't know half the people we partied with. What are you guys? A club. Oh, like a math club or something? <laughs> You know how you make decisions that lead to other decisions? Gonna get us caught! Then you don't remember why you made those decisions in the first place. Get the gun! Get the gun! Boom! And when it first came out at the Sundance Film Festival, people were saying, like, how dare you make a movie like this that portrays Asian Americans so negatively? And now it's it's considered the one, the film that we want to, to say represents us most. And that shows how far we've come in how, um, the kinds of stories that we want to tell of ourselves. Well, I remember when that came out, there was an incident where I think it was Roger Ebert who had to get up on a chair and say, Justin Lin can make any film he wants. It doesn't have to be. And I just remember that was like a big controversy when that happened. I get goosebumps every time I seem <laughs> to see that video on YouTube. <laughs> and what were some of the other titles that came up there that you were glad to see? I was really, I was actually surprised and but very glad to see um, at number two a documentary uh, called Mining the Gap, which came out mm-hmm. last year. It was nominated for an Oscar last year about skateboarders in um, the Chicago area. I'm surprised partly because it was a documentary, but also it's not as quote-unquote Asian-American as potentially other films. So for Asian-American critics and curators to claim it and say, like, this is a film that's largely about black and white skateboarders, the, the director is Asian-American. He actually becomes a character in the film in a very, very important way, um, which is why I qualified for this list. Mm-hmm. But nobody said, how dare you? <laughs> this doesn't qualify. Um, so also showing the broadening of what we mean by Asian-American stories. I mean, there were a lot of films in the, in the top 10 or so that were very new. Um, Crazy Rich Asians, The Farewell, which is like, still in the- was still in theaters mm-hmm. when I did the poll. And I think that goes to show that in the last few years, films like these, like, these, like Columbus that there was a critical mass around them and people knew to watch them and to, and to talk about them and then to think about the implications of these films within an Asian-American film movement. And, but really, it's the films that are after those movies that excite me because they're ones that I was afraid had been forgotten. Um, films like Refugee 
by Spencer Nakasako or Colma the Musical by oh, Richard Wong. One of the great, <laughs> one of the great American musicals of the kind of the post-musical era. Um, and I mean, I, yeah, I was, because these films aren't readily available. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not on Netflix, as far as I know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're not on Netflix. <laughs> and they're certainly not free. Like for, I mean, like they're not streaming if you subscribe to something. They're out of out on they're out of print on DVD. They've never gotten the Blu-ray treatment because they were shot on standard definition. Um, and so they could, these are the films that could easily be left behind, even though they're the ones that embody the spirit of Asian American cinema so perfectly. Like that, the idea that when you have nothing except your own story, you're going to do everything you can to tell it, and you're going to find all the people around you who are going to who believe in your passion and are going to do it and then do it well and well in a way. Like Coma the Musical is a movie that. Like I still remember the songs in there. <laughs> I remember like specific scenes so well. It's part of a, a the memory of the few who saw it when it first came out. And some of those movies where you find out that somebody else has seen it before, and then you're suddenly, you're immediately friends with them. Uh, it's, it's 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 that kind of experience. Yeah. So seeing films like that pop up on the list, films like Journey from the Fall, um, which is kind of an epic story of mm-hmm. Vietnamese American refugees. Um, but yeah, is not easily easily accessible. But there was a whole generation of people. At the time, you had to see this movie, especially if you're Vietnamese in the United States, and you did, and you remember it, and you kept you keep that memory alive. And so, I'm glad that the point of the of the list, which is to keep memories alive, worked for a movie like that. And there were also a good number of women filmmakers, which was really nice to see. So, women have made it seems almost like there were more women represented as Asian American filmmakers than we sometimes get on just general lists of, you know, films directed by women in Hollywood. Right. So, I mean, I, I would put the challenge if somebody was making a list of the top 20 American films of the last 20 years, like how many of those would be directed by women? And I'm not saying that women haven't made great films during Mm -hmm. those years, but I feel like the ones that get remembered as great sometimes aren't those movies. Um, and so I'm glad that in at least in the Asian American community that filmmakers like Mira Nair, mm-hmm. Grace Lee, um, and now with Lulu Wang that get that can be that they've canonized as in the pantheon of great Asian American directors. In fact, I think there should have been more actually, <laughs> like, because <laughs> once you go beyond the top twenty, I'm like, oh wait, but there was that movie too, and there's this movie, and and so yeah, there's still a lot of uh, work that can be done. But I'm glad you noticed that um, those that, that there were women filmmakers in the top twenty, and I also like um, in choosing which curators and critics to pull, made sure that there was parity, um, male and female, in, in who we were asking for um, their contributions, and and so maybe it's reflective of that, or maybe it's just the fact that Asian American <laughs> cinema has 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 been inclusive to some extent throughout these twenty years. So you brought up Crazy Rich Asians, which. I have really mixed feelings about being on this list. Uh, I'm Asian-American. My grandfather was Chinese. And when I saw the film, first of all, I do have to confess that romantic comedy is probably <laughs> my least favorite kind of film of all. But the, the I feel like it deserves to be recognized because it did so well. But on the other hand, I feel like... It's a film that proves that Asian-American filmmakers can assimilate perfectly into the Hollywood mainstream and make a film just like all the others. So I have these really mixed feelings about that film being on the list. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I, it's, it's certainly not universally loved. But those who love it, even in the Asian-American community, like love it for reasons not just about representation, mm-hmm. but love it because they, they had a great time. And partly because they lo- they're 
they just like romantic comedies. <laughs> so this, and and I mean, a lot of commentators have talked about the, the fact that Hollywood has not made a big budget romantic comedy in seemingly forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so a film like this is also just feeding in a national <laughs> desire to see this kind of like lavish romantic silliness. Um, I mean, silliness slash like working out issues of in this case of. Of a family, of language, of culture, and partly of, of gender as well. I mean, I personally really like the movie. But I love romantic comedies, and <laughs> we're very I, different there. I, well, I I also love Hollywood musicals. Like, think about like the MGM musicals. See, I love MGM musicals. Yes, but this has a similar to me a similar kind of color and pizzazz and over the topness, <laughs> and and we're also willing to suspend certain kind of reality um, and just kind of surrender to the the color and yeah into the music all right i guess i just didn't surrender <laughs> yeah that's my that's my toughest genre to me that's like you know it's like people look at horror and go like oh that you know scares right, me yeah. it's like romantic comedies are like oh that scares me <laughs> <laughs> um you did talk about some of the criteria that um i think led to some of the films that i really liked that didn't get represented mm-hmm. or filmmakers i guess so you know there's people like greg Araki that I think it's great, but I guess he really doesn't focus that much on Asian Americans. But like Mysterious Skin is one of my favorite films of all time. I know. And if we had opened it up even more, the, the, what I was afraid of was that this top 20 list would be at least half of it would be films that were not about Asian mm-hmm. Americans anymore. Because um, then you would include like Mysterious Skin. I love Mysterious Skin. I, like Greg Araki is incredible. We may end up with some M. Night Shyamalan films on this list, mm-hmm. right? Um, whether you love them or you hate them. Like people think signs and I mean the, or, or, or the sixth Six sense yeah. um, unbreakable are like really strong American films and and I, I to me that's that's certainly the case and you would get films yeah, like I mentioned Chloe Zhao with the writer or songs my brothers taught me and as, to the extent that we want to celebrate these films do we want to celebrate them at the expense of these films that are actually about Asian Americans mm-hmm. and so I, I so that's why I had that criteria I also missed Karen Kusama's oh, girl fight on there. I know, yeah. Who, which we played our, our th- at the first edition of the San Diego right. Asian Film Festival. And I can tell you that she skipped out of her screening to come watch the Suzuki Seijan oh. film because she had never seen it on a big screen. And I felt that justified completely by <laughs> having gotten that film. Well, I mean, that makes me love her even more. <laughs> Yeah, because and you know that also brings up people like Dustin Cretton, mm-hmm. who did Short Term Twelve and is now going to be directing one of the Marvel films. But yeah, I feel like now we need another list, which is what you partially wanted to inspire, but of you know interesting Asian American filmmakers who are succeeding not just with films that deal with Asian American themes, but are kind of to me those are the filmmakers that are kind of assimilating into the mainstream films in a way that I appreciate more than, I think, Crazy Rich Asians. Ah, but yeah, that, that yeah. may just be my particular taste. Ah, I, that, I, that's totally understandable. And so the flip side of this that we also decided to bracket out were films that were about Asian Americans, but not directed by Asian Americans. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are saying, where's Harold and Kumar on this list? Um, the other one is like, where's The Big Sick? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are like films I love. But again, we, we, if, we, there was a danger of is, is this what we want the list to turn into? Mm. Um, and so we decided, you know, not, not this time. Maybe for another list. <laughs> in another 10 years, maybe you'll have a different perspective maybe, on, yeah. on what you want to put in there. And so having done this list, this year the Asian Film Festival did include kind of a retrospective of some of these titles. And 
how was that? How was it kind of introducing this? Or were you introducing these films to a generation that hadn't seen them or to people who were glad to see them again? How had they play yeah. out? Oh, absolutely. Like if I often use our interns as barometers, <laughs> uh, our, our interns are, in, are undergrads mostly. And not only had they not seen these films, they had never even heard of them. <laughs> And and for us, it's like, well, that's that says something. Like, there's mm-hmm. a there's a new generation of like, if there are interns at our festival, it is it means that they have some interest in Asian American media already, and maybe some exposure to it. But these aren't this isn't the media they've they've been exposed to. Uh, rather, they're very familiar with online, like what's out on YouTube, uh, or what's on television, what's on Netflix. Um, and so the idea of film history is is a little bit uh, foreign to them. And so if they haven't seen it before, if they haven't heard of these films, we should get them out there, make them accessible. Um, and then certainly, like, a lot of our audiences, as our audiences always tell us, there are just way too many movies at our festival every year. They can't see everything, and there's tons of stuff that um, they never had a chance to see. And so being able to bring it out is also a, a second chance to a, for a film that still, years later, there's no other way to watch them. Oh, and, and on, I mean, on our top 20 list, I've no, I noticed that some were films that we had played recently mm-hmm. for other retrospectives we've done or that they're just so new that we've played them in the last you know, five years. So we focus on the ones that haven't played that much before. So we, some of them were playing during the festival, um, especially Saving Face. We have a 35-millimeter print. Let's, let's do it. Um, but there's some films that really, like, we wanted to tie to certain communities, to, to campuses, to libraries, and just make them free students and to library goers um and so so yeah in the lead up to our festival we've been playing these all around the county so now that you have the festival has 20 years behind them and you have almost 10 years behind you as the artistic director what are you looking forward to in the future um well i i'm I'm looking forward to continuing to do projects like uh, our opening night film um, what we, we are producing our own film. I mean, I'm not saying we should just keep producing films, but to keep finding other ways to serve our communities and to tell our stories. Uh, in particular, because we still believe in film, even if a lot of filmmakers are not moving into television and web. Um, so if if the films aren't being made naturally, maybe we have to be involved in encouraging their, their production, whether that's funding it ourselves or creating... Um, opportunities for filmmakers to meet each other, to spark other ideas so they can work together. Um, and, and so f- having the festival rethink what it can be, and not purely for exhibition, that we are a hub for new ideas. Um, and I'm looking forward to how we're going to innovate in that realm. Well, I want to thank you for pushing the envelope and getting people out of their comfort zone. You do program some films that are very popular and crowd-pleasing, but... Film festivals, to me, are a sacred place where there are some films that can only play there. I mean, you can get Hollywood releases a week early and screen them at your festival, but it's these little gems that you te- you seem to dig up every year that you can't find anywhere else, like Dead Souls, your eight-hour documentary. <laughs> I, I mean, I went for eight hours, and I thought it was fascinating. And this year, uh, you know, finding... Afghan films was a total discovery. So I just want to thank you for uh, pushing that envelope. Thank you. That was Brian Hu, Artistic Director of the San Diego Asian Film Festival, which is celebrating two decades of showcasing Asian and Asian American films. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Cinema Junkie. Please subscribe to the podcast and recommend it to a friend because your recommendation is the best way to get new listeners. Coming up, I'll have a special Thanksgiving episode about films to be thankful for. The podcast comes out every other week, and I recommend checking out Cinema Junkie episode 155, in which my friend and stunt driver Steve Lepper picks his favorite car movies and discusses the best car chases ever put on film. You can find a link to the show at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. You can also hear me on Frank Woodward's latest episode of his podcast, Film Sense. We debate what is cinema and what's the best way to watch a movie to truly enjoy a cinematic experience. Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.